0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Yeah, so I'm Garrett Lewis. I'm an astronomer here at the University of Sydney, and I'm actually a cosmologist. So my research is focused on trying to understand the forces that have shaped the evolution of the universe. So, what I want to do tonight is to take you on a bit of a journey. Not a journey through space, but a journey through time. I want to do it in two parts. I want to firstly look backwards, look at the evolution of our universe from its birth to today, and understand how we work out how the universe actually works. And then, I want to turn around and I want to look into the future, and I want to use the laws of science which we understand, to work out what the ultimate fate is for our universe. Now, this is a scientific topic, and science doesn't really sugarcoat anything, so I'm going to warn you in advance that the outlook is not good. (laughs) But let's try and understand what we understand about the universe. What we need to do is we need to take steps through time, steps backward and steps forward. And as we get into the more distant future of the universe, our steps are going to become larger and larger and larger. As well as um, taking steps through time, what we're also taking steps through is our, our knowledge of science. Because the universe around us, as we understand it today, we understand really, really well. But as we push out into the extreme ages of the universe, we're going to run into a bit more speculation than sort of robust scientific theory. So, I'll sort of warn you when we enter the more sort of speculative areas, but we start off with something which is, you know, very scientifically well-known. Now, as I mentioned, we're gonna go on a journey, and the story is that, you know, every journey starts with a, a single step. Before we take a step backwards into the past, or a step forward into the future, I think it's important to really understand where we are. Where are we? Where we are. Well, of course, we're on the surface of a small, rocky planet orbiting a, fa- a fairly typical star. Now, of the thousands of planets we know exist, and the trillions of planets we think exist, this is clearly a very special planet. Why? Well, it's the only planet where there is incontroversible, incontroversible evidence that there is life. There's lots of speculation about life on other planets, but we have no evidence for life anywhere but here in the universe. Now, we're gonna talk about life in the universe as we go through this talk, right? It's one of the questions we have, is not only what the ultimate fate is for the universe, but what about the fate of life in the universe? So we'll bring up life uh, at the various epochs as we step our way through. Now, talking about life is difficult because when you get down to the fundamental level Defining precisely what life is, is very, very difficult. And if you read any of the literature on defining life, you always find that somebody sets up a bunch of rules and say, this is what I would define life as being, and there will be a counterexample that doesn't fit into the rules. So there are arguments today about, you know, is, is a virus alive? Is a virus life? And there are things smaller than viruses, There are prions, these are just distorted bits of protein that cause diseases in humans, but they reproduce. Are are they alive? And so, what what happens is the definition of life is kind of mired, it's very messy. Now, this isn't a talk on on life, and I'm gonna use a very simple definition of life for the purposes of this talk. Life is something that processes energy, okay? And what do I mean by that? Well, here on Earth, right, we have sunshine, the sunshine arrives on Earth, some of it gets absorbed by plants. Plants use that energy to build themselves and they store energy, they store sunlight in their cells. Then animals come along and they can eat the plants and they can gain that energy which was ultimately sunlight. And then, of course, you can come along and you can eat the animal that ate the plant, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But all along the way, energy is being processed. And when you eat, okay, you bring in fuel, and that fuel does several things, right? It fuels your body, allows you to move. It fuels your body in the sense that it allows you to repair yourself and, if you're a youngster, to grow. And it powers, it powers the thought processes, okay? So information processing requires energy, so life, if it's going to think in any kind of way, it's going to process energy along the way. Now, this has an important implication. The implication is that if life is going to exist and thrive into the future, it's going to need energy. Right? So just like some of the conversations going outside this room with regards to energy supply, in the future, reliable energy is going to become the key commodity. Now, here on Earth, as I mentioned, it's sunlight is the ultimate source of energy. So for life on Earth, right, we are only here because the sun is a nuclear reactor, and every second it converts 11 million tons of hydrogen into helium. That energy takes 100,000 years to get to the surface of the sun, then eight minutes to the surface of the Earth, and then to be absorbed by plants, and then to us. So for us, The fact that we have life on Earth is because we've had this immense source of of energy sitting in the middle of the solar system. So for us, okay, the sun is critical. If the Earth was on its own, there would not be life on Earth. There would not be the source of energy. So if we take a look at our sun, of course our sun is not alone in the universe. Our sun is a typical star, but it lives with roughly 200 billion other stars in this immense object. This is a galaxy, this is our Milky Way. And there are many, many stars like the sun in the Milky Way. But when we look out into the universe, we see that there are many, many galaxies. So this picture that we've got here, this was taken from uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. And it was a very uh, simple kind of program. They picked a patch of sky that apparently had nothing in it and then stared at it for 30 hours and then looked at the image. Now, some of the things you can see in this picture are stars. So they're nearby. They're in our own galaxy. But most of what you see are other galaxies, Okay. So in this picture, there are thousands of galaxies, each with possibly a few hundred billion stars. And we've done a census. We know roughly how many galaxies there are in the observable universe, and it's around hundred billion individual galaxies. So, we're staring out into the universe and people have looked at the sky and out into space for thousands of years, right? And over this period, they wanted to understand how does the universe behave? What's the sky telling us about life on Earth? And of course, over most of human history, what we did is we invented stories, right? You know, the, the Greeks, joined the stars together, said, that looks a bit like an animal, that looks a bit like a person, and somehow you attach a story to the stars, and somehow up there are the gods, and down here are the people, and there's some sort of strange relationship between the two. As a scientist, I want to understand the universe in terms of rules and laws. And of course, it was around the 1500s and the 1600s that modern science was born. So what we've got here, this picture is the back of an old British one-pound note, they don't exist anymore. Um, But the person on the back is probably one of the greatest scientists who ever lived. This is Isaac Newton. And he lived at that epoch when people were realizing that you could write down rules to understand how the universe behaved. Now these rules weren't just stories, these rules were mathematics, such that you could write down equations to make predictions. So Galileo and and Newton and many of those that followed them realized that we could write down rules here on earth to describe how a ball will fall or how something slides across a surface. And in fact, sitting on his lap there is a book, the Principia, which was where Uh, Newton basically wrote out all of his theories to do with how the world worked in terms of the mathematics. Now, the step that Newton made, and he wasn't the first, but he, he really pushed this, was to realize that the rules that you write down on earth, you could apply to the heavens. So, it was Newton who realized that the force the apocryphal apple that falls from the tree, the force that takes the apple and accelerates it to the ground is the same force that holds the moon in its orbit. This is gravity. And the equations that you write down for the apple to fall to the ground, they're based on the same equations that you would do to calculate the orbit of the moon. So you didn't need one set of equations on Earth and another set of equations for the heavens. The same rules applied throughout. And in that picture we have here, we have a stylized version of the sun, and it's meant to be the orbit of an object going around the sun. And what Newton showed is that if you want to talk about the uh, the moon going around the earth, or the moon's going around Jupiter, or Jupiter going around the sun, you just need his law of gravity and laws of motions to tell you how they did it. No need for gods. Now the other thing that... Newton has got here on his table is he has a telescope. And of course, at that period, around the fifteen sixteen hundreds 1600s, telescopes were being invented and refined, and the story is that Galileo was the first to point the telescope towards the heavens. I, I can't believe that story is true. I mean, if I was back there in the 1500s and somebody gave me a telescope and said, you can see things far away, the first thing I would do is look at the moon. I'm sure other people did, but he was the first to document what he saw. So back then, Observing the universe, right? understanding what's going on in, there in, in the universe in terms of motions of objects, and then trying to relate that to the laws which we've der- derived on Earth was the basis of modern science. Okay? So it all started with the work of uh, people like Newton way back in the 1500s, 1600s. Now, of course, over the intervening periods, um, our, our notions of where we can apply the rules have grown. So we had Newton working, talking about gravity and how things move, but of course, we then got to understand electricity, and then magnetism, and then quantum mechanics came along. And so we get this ever more detailed picture of the universe in terms of the mathematics. The other thing that's happened... <laughs> our technology is advanced. So this picture here... This this is part of a telescope that's gonna be built partly in South Africa, partly in Australia, the Square Kilometre Array, okay? It's a radio telescope, so it sees radio waves. But it's very similar to exactly what Newton did, right? About looking at the universe, this is a device to get more and more detailed visions of the universe to which we can apply our, our mathematical theories. So, This is where we are today, we've got really, really good telescopes, but how do we understand the universe? What is this universe in which we live? So, what have we realized? Well, we've had a whole host of telescopes, some on Earth, some in space, looking out into the universe. And one thing they revealed, more or less straight away, is that our universe is not the same everywhere. As we look out into the universe, we see the universe is different at large distances than it is nearby. What we realize is that light takes a finite amount of time to travel from one place to the other. So when we look out into the universe, effectively what we're doing is we're looking back in time. And when we say that the universe looks different at large distances, we mean that the universe used to be different in the past. So this is sort of like the picture that we have for our universe. So this is today, and then this is looking backwards, and we have lots of galaxies. We get to an epoch where we seem to run out of galaxies, and then we even seem to run out of the universe. So what have we learned? We've learned that the universe is roughly 14 billion years old. So it hasn't been around forever, okay? It's not infinitely old. It's been around for roughly 14 billion years, and it's been changing and evolving over that time. And in fact, we can actually chop the universe into distinct pieces, right? We have our period today, where there are the galaxies around us, but our universe is behaving strangely. We can see that our universe, which we know has been expanding since the birth of the universe, that expansion is getting faster and faster. As we go back in time, we can see galaxies growing, okay? So galaxies grow this way as we get to today. So back in time, we see baby galaxies. And then as we push back even further, we're now starting to see the signatures of the first stars. And eventually, we run into the birth of the universe, right? We run into the Big Bang. So, we see that our universe was born in this hot, fiery event and it's been expanding and cooling ever since, and out of that expansion came the galaxies and the stars that we see around us today. So this is a really nice picture, and when I say that we understand this, what I mean is that we can write down the mathematical laws that tell us how the universe evolved from here to here to here. Now, one of the things that we like to do, once we have our equations, we look at our equations, we go, these are very complicated, and at our heart, physicists are lazy people, right? We don't like having to deal with difficult equations. What we do is we transplant those equations onto computers, because computers are very good at solving equations. And what we do is we build synthetic universes. Now, it might sound a bit of a stretch to have a synthetic universe, but I have students that do synthetic universes before breakfast. Well, actually, no, they're PhD students. They don't get up until midday anyway. So, first thing in the afternoon, they'll create a synthetic universe. And I'm just gonna show you the results of one of these synthetic universes, right? So this is a universe within a computer. And what you're gonna see is the density of material in the universe. It's a big piece of universe, much, much bigger than our galaxy. So it's going to be millions and millions of light-years across. But all we've done is put in the laws of physics, put in the matter as we thought it was in the early universe, and said, go, and let the equations get solved by the computer. So what have we got? Here we've got the time. This is time after the Big Bang. And this is the first bits of matter coming together and collapsing into the objects that will eventually form galaxies. Our own Milky Way galaxy would be one of these tiny dots. But this is sort of like the overall distribution of matter. And you can see that there's this really nice sort of web structure forming, which is known as the cosmic web. We have these big, dense regions. These are clusters. We have these big, empty regions. These are voids. Now, this particular simulation known as illustrious, the people that generated the simulation, they put in lots of detailed physics. So not only what happens to the matter in terms of just gravity pulling on it, but what happens to the matter when gas collides and collapses and forms stars. So the stuff that you can see going on now, this is the stars formed in the universe, and stars are born, and they live, and they die. And the big stars, when they die, they explode. And that's what these explosions are. Now, these explosions, it's... Firstly, these are very pretty, right? I mean, I could just leave this running and I could go off and have a coffee and come back. You could just watch this forever. But these explosions are very important to us being here. When the universe was formed, it was made of hydrogen and helium. But you're not made of hydrogen and helium. You've got plenty of hydrogen in your water, but you rely on carbon, right? That's the backbone material in your body, as well as iron in your blood. Where did those heavier elements come from? Well, they were made in the hearts of stars, okay? The carbon in your body was made in the hearts of stars. And when those stars died, and they blew off their outer layers, that material was carried back into space and gets recycled into you. Heavy elements, right, up to iron, beyond iron, heavy elements are only formed when stars rip themselves apart and explode, okay? So anyone who's got any gold on them? Yeah, gold ring? yeah. At least they said it was gold when they sold it to me. right? This gold was forged when a star ripped itself apart. That's where this material comes from. All the heavy elements do. Uh, is that a romantic thing to say when you give a ring? A, a star had to die? So, we, we understand how the universe has evolved from basically the Big Bang to today, and we sort of understand where we are, right? So this is the, uh, the VLT, the Very Large Telescope, which is located in Chile, right? It's on our rocky planet orbiting the sun, and this is looking up at our Milky Way galaxy, and in the south you can see the center of the Milky Way, but all these stars are part of this galaxy. So this is where we are, right? We're orbiting a star in a galaxy, in a universe with hundreds of billions of other galaxies. So the question is, what is next? Now, one of the mistakes you can make when you think about evolution of humans is that, that we are the pinnacle, right? This is it. This is the pinnacle of evolution. Maybe not me, but, right? <laughs> but you... But you You'd be wrong, right? Human beings are still evolving and still, are change- and still changing, and whatever creatures we will be in the future will be different to people today. And it's the same with the universe. You might, look, you might say, oh, it's really nice here on Earth. right?" Maybe it's gonna be this way forever. Maybe this is it. This is the pinnacle of the universe. But we can use our laws of science to start pushing the clock forward and ask what's next. So let's start doing that. What we're going to do is we're going to start to move into the next few billion years, right? This is the time scale you've got to deal with on the universe, right? It deals in billions of years. What's the next thing that's going to happen? Well, here we are in the Milky Way galaxy, and roughly 2 million light years away is another big galaxy, Andromeda. Andromeda has maybe 300 billion stars in it. Now, every half an hour, Andromeda gets half a million kilometers closer to us. So if you do the numbers in your head quite quickly, that means that in three billion years, Andromeda will be here. Now, there's already a few hundred billion stars in this galaxy, there's a few hundred billion stars in Andromeda, they're going to collide. What's gonna happen? Again, we can use the, lo- use the law of physics and get a bit closer, here we go. So here we've got a movie, here we have time in the bottom here, and this is meant to be our Milky Way galaxy. There's our few hundred billion stars, the sun is in there somewhere. Two million light years away, we have Andromeda and the clocks ticking, they're getting closer and closer. We have a third little galaxy that's called Triangulum, and that's just gonna hang around. These are the big guys, and they're going to collide. So in roughly three to four billion years, they have their first encounter. So basically they'll crash through each other, and then they move apart. Now in that collision, you can see that lots of stars have actually been thrown off. So, even the Sun itself could end up being thrown out into intergalactic space. But more exciting things happen first. In that collision, one of the interesting things about when galaxies collide is that stars are actually very small compared to the distances between stars. So, when galaxies collide, all of the stars go rushing past each other. So, the, sun, the chances of the Sun hitting another star are almost zero. So, the Sun should be able to hold onto the Earth. But big galaxies also contain lots of gas. And when gas clouds hit gas clouds, they don't go through each other. You get a shock wave, and then gas collapses, and you form lots of stars. So, straight after the collision, essentially all of the gas in the Milky Way will have been violently shaken, and there would have been collisions, and the Milky Way is going to light up. There's going to be lots of stars born. And when you create lots of stars, the the ones that dominate are the massive stars, and they are bright, and they are blue. So just after the collision, they're gonna separate, but our sky is gonna look like a fireworks display, right? It's gonna be lit up, there are gonna be stars everywhere. But, what we saw is that the Milky Way and Andromeda collided, they separated, but gravity hasn't stopped working, and so, The collision continues, and they come in for another collision, and again, more stars get thrown off, and you can see the material gets spat out, and a big lump of sort of stars remains in the middle. Now, our Milky Way is a a beautiful spiral galaxy, right? It has this lovely spiral disk and a bulge of stars in the middle. Andromeda is the same. And this collision is going to rip these two galaxies apart. And it's going to leave us with this blob of stars. But this collision, as I said, is, you're going to get lots of young stars full. And they're going to be bright and shine. But that gas has somewhere else to go. Some of that gas in the collision actually gets funneled down into the middle of these galaxies. And in the middle of the galaxies, you find black holes. In the middle of our Milky Way galaxy, there's a black hole which is sort of a mass, roughly four million times the mass of the sun. As we pour gas in, it swirls around faster and faster, and it gets hotter and hotter. And the center of the galaxies become really energetic. right? And they produce these huge jets of radiation that get shot out. So not only are we gonna have this fireworks display across the sky, the center of our galaxy is gonna light up as well. It'll be brighter than the sun will be. But the collision sort of continues, and what happens is that all of that gas gets used up. Right? The black hole swallows the gas very, very quickly, and then all that sort of excitement in the center of the galaxy disappears. The hot blue stars that are formed when the gas clouds collide in the galaxy, well, those stars, they, they are the James Dean of stars. Right? They live fast, and they die young. If you don't know who James Dean is, think of Amy Winehouse. If you don't know who Amy Winehouse is, I'm out of cultural references at this point, right? Live fast, die young. So these stars last for about 10 million years, and boom, they're gone. And so what happens is, our galaxy settles down into this single blob. And unfortunately, this blob has been given a name milk yeah? So, after the collision in this, on this timescale now of a few billion years, our Milky Way galaxy will be gone, right? It will be destroyed in the collision. There will be a single galaxy left over. Now, remember, this single galaxy still contains roughly half a trillion stars, right? Much bigger, but it's lost all of that beautiful structure. Now... We're gonna start taking bigger steps out into the universe. I'm just gonna point out that I've got a time scale up there that uh, notes the years. These are gonna get bigger and bigger. So we're start off with billions of years. I'm using scientific notation there for the uh, number of years. So that number five times 10 to the nine, that means five followed by nine zeros. As you'll see, the uh, 10 to the power thing gets big very, very quickly. So, there's going to be a collision. Galaxies are going to co- collide. Stars are going to be spread all over the place. The Earth will still be bound to the sun. And you might say, well, well okay, that's, that's going to be fun. right? We're going to have lots to see. But, you know, after that, what's going to happen? Well, the big problem is, is that our sun is a middle-aged star. right? Our sun is roughly 5 billion years old. So so it's been turning hydrogen into helium in its core for five billion years. And we know that it's got enough fuel to keep doing that for roughly another five billion years. So on the timescale of this collision, the sun is going to run out of nuclear fuel. Now what's going to happen? Well, like all of us going through middle age, you don't go through it without fighting, So the sun's going to run out of hydrogen, and it's going to start to try and burn helium in its core. But this makes it very unstable. And the sun is going to grow. It's going to swell. It's going to get larger and larger. Its surface is going to cool, so it goes from being a white star to being a red star, but it becomes much, much more luminous. And as it grows, the energy that the sun puts out, firstly, it evaporates the atmosphere of the Earth. That gets blown away. Then, essentially, it dries up the oceans, and that all gets blown away. The sun is going to continue to expand. It will swallow Mercury. It will swallow Venus. Eventually, it's going to swallow the Earth. And possibly, it's going to get so big that it will swallow Jupiter. Not Jupiter. Mars. Sorry. thinking ahead of myself there. Uh, the planet Mars. So, in five billion years, this is the end of the Earth right? There's not much we can do to stop that. Now, you might be thinking, five billion years, why worry? No, it's not not tomorrow. But at some point, at some point, we're going to have to get off the surface of the planet. We're going to have to travel into space, and we're going to have to start to find other stars to live around. As I said, five billion years sounds like an awfully long time, but if we don't do anything in that five billion years, and this is the only place where life is in the universe, and at the moment we haven't got any evidence the other way, then that's it for life in the universe, right? So eventually, if life is gonna continue to thrive, and it doesn't exist anywhere else in the universe, it's gonna have to develop some sort of way of spreading life beyond the sun, okay? And of course, there have been lots of suggestions on what we do. You know, do we do we just send colony ships with thousands of people? Or do we just freeze people? Or do we just freeze eggs and sperm and send those off into the universe? They have got to find another source of energy, right? They've got to find another star around which they can basically thrive. Of course, you know. We're not really a space-faring species at the moment. We've been to the moon, spent a few years there, just went, okay, we've done that now, and now we're focused on life back on Earth. But as I said, we are going to have to think about what's going to happen longer term and what ha- is going to happen to life, especially if this is the only place that there's life in the universe. Okay. So that's five billion years. We'll assume that life has gotten off the Earth and has spread throughout the, uh, throughout our galaxy. And you can, you can do this calculation, you can ask yourself the question, how long would it take to colonize our Milky Way galaxy? And cosmologically speaking, it doesn't take very long at all. It only takes roughly 10 million years to hop from star to star to star, even at the relatively slow spaceships that we would have to use, faster than the ones we have now, but to, to colonize the entire galaxy. And you might think, oh, okay, we've, we've occupied our milk Omega. Maybe what we want to do, if we want to con- continue to ensure that life is going to survive and thrive, maybe we want to jump to the next galaxies, because there's loads of stars over there as well. Right? Remember, energy is going to be a resource, and each star is going to be a source of energy. So as your population grows, you're going to need more and more stars. Well, that's all fine for a little bit but something radical is gonna happen at around 100 billion years. Now, as I mentioned, we understand the, the universe quite well, but one thing that we've discovered in the last 20 years or so is that while our universe is expanding, that expansion is accelerating. Now, we don't really know why it's accelerating, but it's thought that there's this stuff, dark energy. We give it such a name because we have no clue what it is, right? We may as well make it sound scary, right? Dark energy, this is a substance that fills the universe and is causing the expansion to accelerate. On a time scale of roughly 100 billion years, that expansion is going to radically affect how we observe the universe. So, what's going to happen? All of those distant galaxies we see they're going to be accelerating away from us faster and faster and faster. And in fact, they will be accelerating away from us so fast that eventually we will lose sight of them, right? The galaxies will basically disappear. They will have gone over the horizon, the cosmic horizon. And what we will be left with is a picture of the, the deep sky. We will see only stars in our Milky Way galaxy, and then beyond that, nothing inky blackness as far as we can see. We will only be able to see stars very near to us. So if any civilization arises in the universe 100 billion years from now, and they train their telescopes on the heavens, they're never going to work out that the universe is expanding because there's nothing to see. They will see the nearby stars around them, but they won't see the distant galaxies, which we use to work out the fact that the universe has evolved over time. What that means is, is that, as I mentioned, we've got roughly 500 uh, billion stars living together in Milkometer, and then everything else has moved away from us, and so this this leftover galaxy is all alone in the universe. It's all by itself. You can't hop to the next galaxy, you can't see it, you can never fly to it. So maybe that's it. Maybe we've gotten to the point then that that's the future, that we have Milkometer, and we will live in there, and we can live with those stars, etc. Of course, there's a problem. Right? That's going to be the theme. So let's jump now. Instead of billions of years, let's start to talk about trillions of years. So here's Milk just after it was formed, and it's nice and blue. There's lots of hot young stars, but they're exploding. And as they die, what they leave in are the smaller stars. Now those smaller stars tend to be smaller and cooler. All right? So as we go from the millions of years to billions of years, over the timescale of billions of years, there'll be no stars like the sun left, they'll have died. And the only stars that will be left in this leftover galaxy will be the smallest, piddliest dwarf stars. Why? Well, a dwarf star has a mass, roughly a tenth that of our sun, it burns its nuclear fuel so gently that it can just burn for ages and ages and ages. But it is a really sort of pitiful thing in terms of the energy output. So we're gonna be left in this sort of ever-faded galaxy where all of the bright stars have disappeared and what we're left with are just lots and lots of these fainter stars. Remember, energy. Energy is what we need to power life. And energy is now starting to become scarce, right? If you've got a a star like the sun, it produces lots and lots of energy and you can use that. But now we have this leftover galaxy that has these faint red stars. So that's rather tricky for a number of reasons. Number one, these faint red stars, even though they're piddly, are bad-tempered, okay? What do I mean by that? Well, our sun is kind of well-behaved. It puts out a constant amount of energy, has done for billions of years, and will do for billions of years. Every so often, the sun has a hiccup, right? You get a solar flare, which comes through the solar system, can disrupt power lines on Earth, can disrupt communication satellites, but they're relatively rare. These small red stars, though, they're a lot more active. And there have been some recent calculations is that they do, they are so sort of up and down and flary and they do all kinds of non-constant output that living around them is going to be hard. And that the prospect that the conditions on a planet near a red dwarf would be conducive to life, it's thought to be almost impossible, right? So the, that the life was not going to arise around these very small stars. So what are we going to do? We still need to use that energy. We can't really land on the planet. And there have been a number of suggestions. And one of my favorites is one of these things. It's kind of hard to see. It's called a Dyson sphere, right? And what what is a Dyson sphere? So it says you turn up and you find a a red star. And you don't want to live on the planets because the planets don't have good conditions for life. So you start to deconstruct the planets, and you reconstruct them into structures that orbit the star. And those structures, basically on the inside, you put solar panels, you absorb as much radiation as you can, and then you process that energy and you basically live on the outside, okay? And so you can efficiently use that energy without having to live on a planet and have plants and that kind of thing. It's thought that potentially by this stage, energy will have become so scarce that life, intelligent life, has decided that biological life is inefficient, right? You know how much energy it takes to run all of this, and that's just to keep this thing in here, you know, moving around and thinking. So the, the proposal is that you can make life more efficient by basically turning life from biological life into computational life. So you move consciousness onto computers. Now, nobody knows if we can put consciousness on a computer. Nobody knows if you could take what's in your head and transplant it onto a computer. But if uh, there's going to be life in the future and it wants to efficiently use um, the energy that's available, it's going to have to find some, some solution. And being a biological meat bag is not really the way to go, especially seeing that you would need to capture the energy to grow some plants, to eat the plants, da 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 There's inefficiencies all the way. So 10 trillion years, maybe life can keep going. It won't be life as we know it now, but maybe life can keep going. But there's a problem, right? There's another problem. And the problem is, is that even these little red stars eventually run out of fuel. And so there will come a day when there is one star remaining in our galaxy. Okay? Roughly 100 trillion years from now. Burning hydrogen into helium, at some point that hydrogen is going to run out and the star you know, basically d- tries to do what the sun does and basically tries to restructure itself to burn helium and other elements. So it goes through this sort of like uncomfortable phase when it's trying to settle everything down and it does for a while, it succeeds. It shrinks a little bit and I, instead of being a red dwarf, it's a, um, a blue dwarf. But this is unstable. The star actually can't remain like this for long and eventually, the nuclear reactions at the heart of the star, they stop. The star basically gives up. Gravity wins. And the star shrinks down until it's a white dwarf. And a white dwarf is a dead star. Okay? It's no longer producing energy through nuclear reactions. All it is doing is cooling. So it's very, very hot. It could be, you no. Know, million degrees, but it just sits there, and it cools, and it fades, and it cools. So after this point, after 100 trillion years, our galaxy is going to be dark. There are going to be no sources of light. And after that, all we are going to have are these dead hearts of stars roaming around. So, once these things have cooled down to the background temperature, our galaxy will just be full of these dead star hearts, there will be billions of them floating around, but they will be completely cold. So what is life going to do? Well, it's going to have to eke out its existence on whatever remaining heat there is in these cooling stars. Now, it's thought that you know hanging around one, one dead star isn't going to do it. You're going to have to sort of spread yourself out over a number of these dead stars to absorb enough energy to keep life going. And there's been a proposal is that what you do is instead of having your Dyson sphere, you basically, you turn life into a cloud, okay? I.e., what you do, this is actually a cloud in our galaxy. I couldn't find a picture of a cloud in the future. I did try. But this is a cloud of gas in our galaxy. And essentially, the idea would be is that this would be one immense spread out, little bits and pieces, computing device, talking to itself very, very slowly, sending signals back and forth, and grabbing any little bits of energy it can find from any of the dead stars as they come past. You know, you might say, well, that that sounds like a crazy idea, right? But it's already been the topic of one of my favorite science fiction books, The Black Cloud by Fred Hoyle. So Fred Hoyle was a cosmologist last century, uh, well-known as a maverick cosmologist for some fantastic ideas, some completely Froot Loop crazy, right? He also wrote science fiction books, and in this book he thought about whether or not the clouds that we see in our galaxy can actually be um, some sort of sentient being. Right? And what they do in, in the book is these clouds travel around and they arrive on the sun, they absorb some energy, and then they move off and they do whatever they do. And of course, the, the book, The Black Cloud, with Fred Hoyle, the trouble starts is when the cloud decides it wants to come and sit on our sun to warm up, therefore robbing the Earth of any sunlight which we all know is, is pretty bad. So, so maybe this is it. Maybe life becomes somewhat more distributed. So we're now trillions of years into the future, right? We've got this isolated galaxy of dead star hearts. Is, is that the end? Is this, is this what the universe becomes? And the answer is, is we don't think so. We think it's got a few more things to go through first. Now, to understand this, we've got to talk about the stability of matter. Now, we all, well, I don't know how about you guys, we all feel reasonably stable, right? Okay? We all feel like objects, pretty solid. If I come back tomorrow, this table will be here. We don't sort of imagine that this table is going to evaporate and just um, disintegrate anytime soon. But we know that matter is not truly stable because we know there's radioactivity, We know that one element can change into another element through radioactive decay. So so at some level, matter is not fully stable. But the question we have is that, what about the fundamental bits of matter? The things that things are really made of, are they stable? So let's let's remind ourselves of what I mean. We're gonna take a journey. We're gonna take a journey into a single atom. So if you remember your chemistry, Right, here's an atom, we're flying through the electron cr- clouds, so these are the electrons orbiting on the outside, and we're diving into the middle of the atom, going deeper and deeper and deeper, smaller and smaller and smaller, until we get to this thing in the middle. So this is the nucleus at the center of every atom. Now the nucleus is tiny, right? so the, the analogy that I like is that the nucleus inside an atom is like a fly inside a cathedral. Okay? So you're made of atoms, all of your mass is inside the nuclei of your atoms, okay? That means that you are mostly empty space. Now, we all met people that we thought were empty space, but actually physically, (laughs) empty space. Now, in the nucleus, the nucleus is a messy place. It contains two kinds of particles, a proton and a neutron. So they are the blue and the red things here. And the gold is the strong force, the thing that holds the nucleus together. Now if I take a neutron and I put it on its own, then after about 15 minutes, it falls apart. It breaks down into a proton and an electron. But if we take a proton and we put it on its own, it seems to be ultimately stable. Okay? There's nothing for it to de- decay into, so it seems like it should last forever. Except, if it lasts forever, then there's a big problem with how we understand the universe. One of the key mysteries we have is why there is any matter in the universe. When the universe was created, there should have been equal amounts of matter and antimatter. And as the universe cooled down, they should have combined and annihilated, so there'd be no matter left in the universe. No matter, no antimatter. But quite clearly, there is some matter, right? There's matter in this room. So you need a mechanism to ensure that you have matter left over in the early universe, and to do that, you need to introduce a new force into nature, one that we haven't really discovered yet, but that force would mean that the proton It's ultimately unstable. For how long though, right? Neutron, 15 minutes, how long would I have to leave a proton and wait to see if it is stable or not? Well, the answer is that number that we've got up there, 100 nonillion years, which is one followed by 32 zeros. So after that time, if we take our proton, is our proton. And a proton itself is made of smaller bits and pieces. These are called the quarks. So for 10 to the 32 years, these quarks, there's three of them inside, they sort of like all bounce around and the proton sits there looking stable. But after roughly this period of time, there's a chance that this force will act, this unknown force, and it will essentially turn the proton into, uh, into something it's never been before to cause it to decay and it becomes an electron and uh, two particles of light. What that means is that on that time scale, matter melts. All matter melts, right? All atoms eventually become electrons and light. Now, that's probably gonna be rather tricky for life. Because you know, if, even if we're computational life, we're gonna be computational life on devices made of matter. So you probably will need to ha- set up some sort of process whereby you need to c- keep creating matter, which means you need to keep using energy such so that you can keep going and fight against the decay of matter over time. Not insurmountable, but life is starting to look a bit tough. So we've got to this point, all the matter has melted. And you might say, well, w- well, what's left? There's electrons floating around, and there's radiation. But there is something else in the darkness. Okay? One thing that we have mentioned before, but they've just been sitting there doing their own thing. These are black holes. So as I mentioned, there were black holes in the middle of the galaxy, and there are little black holes moving around. they're formed when stars die. And so we will still have black holes. They don't, they're not made of matter, so they don't decay the same way. But on the next time scale, so we're going to go a little bit further now. So instead of 10 to 32 years, we're going to have to worry about the ghost of Stephen Hawking. <laughs> right? Why? Because Stephen Hawking told us that black holes aren't truly black. That they radiate energy. And they actually leak energy out into the universe. When the black hole is, is big, the amount of radiation they leak is, is next to nothing. But as they get smaller, they radiate more and more. And as they get smaller and smaller, they radiate more and more and more. And what you would get is that if we wait for this kind of time scale, then you get that the black holes themselves, they get smaller, they eventually radiate into the colors we can see, and bang, they're gone. Okay. So, again, We're now on an immense time scale, 10 to the 100 years. Matter has melted, and now the black holes themselves are also evaporating into radiation. So for the universe, things are looking pretty dire. Life might be able to grab a teeny bit of energy as these things finally decay, but it's going to be very hard work. But once they're gone, that's effectively it, right? The universe is more or less done. We start to enter a phase then known as the heat death of the universe. So what what does the heat death mean? It means that basically all matter has gone. It's all decayed into light, decayed into um, electrons and positrons. There's no energy available to do anything. The universe is a soup that is cooling and cooling and cooling, there's no way you could mine that soup to get energy out to power life. So on this kind of time scale, the universe reaches its ultimate end. Now, we don't want to finish on a low point, do we? <laughs> is there a way out? Well, there is if you call on speculative physics, right? What do I mean by that? Well. If you wait and you wait a little bit longer and a little bit longer, you can ask yourself, what's going to happen to the universe on the longest time scale? Now, everything's melted away. That dark energy stuff is still in the universe. And it's thought that that dark energy stuff, which has energy associated with it, you can't really use it for anything, but it might undergo a change and jump from one energy level to another energy level. And that burst of extra energy might basically re-exhibit itself as a cosmic rebirth. Just like you would get ice forming in water, you would get these little pockets of basically universal rebirth, and you would get these individual universes forming, and we don't know how you make a universe, but these universes could be quite radically different to ours, okay? They might have different laws of physics, might have different number of dimensions, they might have all kinds of things which means that life in them could be very, very difficult. But in some of these, the conditions could be conducive to life, and there could be within these bubbles sort of regions where matter is formed, and that matter, as soon as the universe has Uh, Being created starts to collapse and starts to form new galaxies and eventually stars and life in whatever universe follows. Now, the chance of life from this universe surviving and going through onto the next universe is next to nothing, right? The universe has this extended period before it's reborn. But there is a chance that the universe will see a rebirth in the future. Now, let me just finish essentially on a quote. Douglas Adams, right? One of the greatest sci-fi writers ever. And I'll fight anyone who says that he isn't. (laughs) This is in one of his Hitchhiker books. There is a theory which states that if anyone discovers exactly what the universe is for and why it's here, it will instantly disappear and be replaced by something even more bizarre and inexplicable. So there's that picture of rebirth. It may not really be about, you know, understanding the universe that takes us forward. It might be, you know, the universe gets to a point where physics means it's going to be reborn. But I thought the most insightful line was the one that followed it. There's another theory which states this has already happened. (laughs) Where did this universe come from? Was this, this universe a rebirth from a universe that's already been through that future history which is facing us from right now. At the moment, we don't know. But there is a get out of clause, a get out of jail clause in physics, which means that this may not be the end of the universe even though we get into the far future. So I should probably finish up and I'm gonna just I'm going to bring the mood back down again. Here's a picture of the earth as it's going to be in 7 billion years' time. (laughs) So I should finish there. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.